But before we get into that, okay, we're going to move on. Joshua chapter 10. If you have a Bible, can you go to Joshua chapter 10? We've been going through the book of Joshua. started like back in September. And we're going through. We're going to nail it all before we hit sort of summertime this year. And we've got to the beginning of chapter 10. So if you can turn to that in your Bible, we will be reading that and looking at that in just a moment. But to, to context what I'm going to say today, I want you just to come with me to last Sunday... Last Sunday evening, I was um, at a leaders meeting, kind of um, in the evening meeting with the leaders team. We were going to eat and we're just sharing, catching up on the beginning of the year. But it, it was a bit of a clash. You ever had a clash in your diary of something very important going on at the same time? You have to make a pick. And I had one of those situations. I had to go to my leaders meeting. I'd have much rather been somewhere else. And the reason I'd have been somewhere, rather been somewhere else was that uh, my favorite American football team, this one, were playing at the same time. So when we turned up at the leaders' meeting, uh, it was on the telly, um, but it had to get turned off. There was none of this. Well, we said we could watch, we could eat food in front of the TV. No. And so I didn't watch it. It got to the end of the meeting, we, we checked in on the score, and the problem was they were losing. In fact, they were losing quite a bit. And I got to that point where, you know, sports shouldn't affect you. It does. It does. And so I wasn't the happiest camper at that point at the end of the meeting. It had been a good meeting. And, and uh, we went home and Mel said, would well, you want to watch kind of the end of the game? I was like, not really. No, I'm going to bed. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm just going to go to bed because they were down and they were what they call a double digit behind. They were 10 points behind and you don't win from that position. It just doesn't happen. You're losing and it was a key game and it was a knockout game because they're into the playoffs. You, you lose, you go home. That's the end. That's the end of your season. You're done. And so I went to bed in a little bit of a stroppy mood, um, and Mel stayed up, and then I got woken up a, a period of time later, and Mel just goes, they won. I went, what? Sat bolt up in her bed, they won. I went, what do you mean they won? I said, they won. And so I grabbed my phone, blurry eye from the side of the bed, and I checked the score. They scored twice in the last few minutes, and thus won the game, beat their opponents, and they're now heading into the Super Bowl, which is next uh, Sunday. And so I was just like, that is amazing. What fantastic news. And what I did in the morning, I got up, um, and the boys came in, they always do, they always pile into our bedroom in the morning, and um, we tell them, we said, the Patriots won last night, and they're getting, they're getting clued into this, and they're like, can we watch the highlights, so can you put the photo up? <laughs> Monday morning, pretty early, we got the laptop out, and we watched the highlights of the game with my boys, and they were all very excited because the Patriots won, and um, Asher, my youngest here on this side, he's so funny because he doesn't even realize they're called the Patriots, because every time you say the Patriots, I say Patriots rule, because they do. And so he thinks they're called Patriots Rule now. So he comes back to me and says, Daddy, can you watch Patriots Rule on the computer? And he wants to watch the highlights of the game. And he knows who they played and he knows what's going on. And he knows who they're going to play in the final, which is next week. But the point is, when I went to bed, victory wasn't certain. In fact, I thought, they'd lie. I thought it was all over. And, and they were done. And it was just one of those things. And, and they call it, when they, you read the, the, the reports after the game, they call it a comeback, they call it a miracle, they call it all these kind of words, these superlatives. But actually, there was no way that they could have won from that position, and there's no way you could be certain of the victory. But what we're going to look at today, that with God, victory is always certain. With Christ, victory is sure. There's never any doubt with him. We know the outcome before the game has even begun. And that's what we're going to be looking at 
this morning as we go through the book of Joshua. Let me just recap a little bit where we've been. God's people who've received the promise of God, they received it way back in Abraham with Genesis. And this promise God had given them to multiply his people and give them a land has been carried from down the generations to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to his sons, to the people of Israel. Moses led them out of Egypt. Finally, Joshua has taken over leadership and they are literally entering the promised land, taking hold of the promises God had given hundreds of years before. And they were taking hold of this inheritance. And we've seen them get into the land, scope out the land. Um, They've taken out Jericho after crossing the Jordan. They've taken out a city called Ai after initial hiccup with sin in the camp and they've dealt that and now they're moving on to the conquest of the land and chapters 9, 10 and 11 are kind of linked and we looked at chapters nine, uh, chapter 9 last week with how do people respond to this and there was this group called the Gibeonites who saw what Israel were doing how they destroyed certain cities and they were executing God's judgment on the people and they decided we've got to we, we need to work out what to do with this. And they, they used trickery and falsehood. And they made a, a, plan, um, a covenant with Israel. But Israel messed up because it said they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. So they'd made a mistake and they found themselves in this covenant with the people who were actually, they're meant to be the enemy. And they suddenly found themselves kind of tricked. And they had to then be obligated by their oath. And then we'll cut into chapter 10 about what the next kind of reaction what it, of what happens with the people of the land. Big idea of this morning is whatever battle we find ourselves in, we know ultimately that God has the victory. Whatever battle we find ourselves in, we know ultimately God has the victory. So let's just look at the next section, beginning of chapter 10. I'll read the first few verses here. It says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jamuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. All right, the first thing we look at today is this coalition. Coalition. This chapter starts similarly to chapter 9, if you notice the, the literally link when it talks about what they heard. It links chapters 9, 10, and 11 together kind of as a unit. said so they heard. So we had Gibeon heard about what Israel had done, and they decided to respond with trying to make a covenant with Israel so they could avoid uh, being attacked. Israel's reputation had caused fear amongst the people because God was with them. But um, what would happen now... With these other people, how would they respond? Because we've had Rahab, she responded in faith. We saw in chapter 2, she put her faith and trust in the God of Israel. Gibeon had responded by trying to make peace. And we have now here a coalition of forces that have responded with outright opposition. Their response to God and what he's doing is complete and utter, we will fight you, we will not let this go. So what he does, the king... There in Jerusalem, just as a side note, that's the first time Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible. It obviously become a huge, significant part of the people of Israel in the future. 
So these five kings, they form a coalition. They're all in the same sort of area of the land, in the south of the land, and they gather together against the people of Gibeon. Why are they attacking Gibeon? Well, Gibeon has made a treaty with Israel, so they're effectively on their side. So actually, it's actually they're now a legitimate target. They might view them as traitors. Wait a minute, you were kind of one of us, weren't you? Or at least, you know, on our side maybe. But now you're definitely not on our side, so we are going to attack you. And if you see that they, they list the opposition twice in verses 3 and verse 5, and it basically shows the completeness and the size of the enemy that are facing them. You've got five city-states and their kings banding together and ganging up on one. You can imagine this wouldn't be a particularly fair fight when it plays itself out. So the opposition against Gibeon at this point is complete and total. Let's move on to what the next section says. It says, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the ill country are gathered against us. Can you detect the note of panic in what they're saying? And it says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekar and Machedar. And as they fled from it for Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekar, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Right, we have the battle now. So Israel have just uh, made a treaty with Gibeon and Gibeon now find themselves under attack from five enemy kings and if you look at verse 6 do not relax come attack them and they won't but then they now turns out the other people they're going to attack them what's going to happen now Israel at this point have a bit of a dilemma are they going to honor the treaty they've made are they going to honor their word because words are fine but then suddenly you have to put them into action And we know from chapter 9 that the treaty was made with uh, trickery. They deceived them. Israel were also at fault for not consulting the Lord in it. But you know that you're thinking, Israel could have just said, well, serves you right. And, you know, you shouldn't have deceived us. And all they could have done was nothing. And the problem, in one sense, would have been solved because Gibeon would have been wiped out by their enemies. The other Amorite kings would have just come and flattened Gibeon. And Israel could have been like, well... That problem's dealt with. But what did Israel do? They remained faithful to their treaty. They remained faithful to the covenant they had made, despite how it came about. But then another question is begged in this situation. Is God going to get involved? Israel made this covenant with Gibeon, and they did it sinfully because they didn't consult the Lord. And Israel, okay, we're going to be obligated to our covenant, but actually God has been with them all the way. God will help them take Jericho, cross the Jordan, take out Ai. 
Is God going to be involved in this thing? And actually, if you're Joshua and you're marching out to battle to, to, to fulfill the treaty you'd signed, you kind of, there's that moment of thinking, actually, there are five armies that I've got to take on, and I've only got our army and the one other from Gibeon, so we're still down five to two. Is God going to be in this? And then God speaks to, to Joshua, and he says to him, Do not fear. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And this is reminiscent of what God said to Joshua right at the beginning of the book of Joshua, chapter 1. About being strong and courageous and taking the land and saying, I am going to be with you. And what we find out here is that Joshua's commission has stayed the same. God's promise to be with them has stayed the same. And the reason why is because God is the same. He hasn't changed. He is faithful to his promises. I will be with you. I will stand with you. I am your God. You are my people. I will be alongside you. And so as Joshua is marching out at night with his men into the kind of the unknown in one sense, God comes and speaks to him and says, actually, I'm going to be with you. They will not be able to stand against you. And so as Joshua and the army marched all night, they had to take their part. So that must have been quite an arduous process in the dark, coming up on the enemy. And it says they took them by surprise. Verse 9, it says they used the word suddenly. They came upon us. The Amorite kings weren't expecting this. Suddenly they were thinking there's five of us, one of Gibeon. They're in the city. We're going to take them. And then Israel, the army of Israel suddenly come up and they launch a surprise attack on it. The details we're not given of exactly what it looks like. But what we are shown is that the one who took the decisive action wasn't actually Joshua and the people of Israel. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Who is the one who took the decisive action? And the Lord threw them into a panic. It says he struck them and he chased them. The focus of this battle isn't on Joshua and his warriors. It's on the God who is fighting for Israel. It is on the Lord who is over all of them. The focus of the author is actually, it's about what God is doing in this situation. He's the one who's taking the the fight to the enemy. He is the one who is dictating the battle. And what we see as a result, the enemy are completely routed. They run for their lives. They flee before God. He threw them into a panic and they're off. They're running away. They can't get away. And there's, there's places listed there. And historians tell us when I was researching this, it's about 20 miles away from the battle site. So basically they fled an awful long way. They were running in fear and panic because the Lord had thrown them into this panic. So they fled, they ran away, and then we get this ominous bit here where it says that um, in verse 11 it says they're going it says the Lord again the one doing it threw down large stones from heaven on them and there were more who died because of the hailstones and the sons of Israel killed with the sword just think about the terrifying nature of that that there was a battle Israel obviously had charged into battle against the enemy they'd been fighting of some kind so there were casualties, and then they fled in panic before the Lord, and it says he threw down the hailstones from heaven, and more were killed by the hailstones than the swords of the warriors. That would have been a devastating military loss. And what we find out from this is that it's a picture of God's judgment on these people, the Amorites. Now, if you go way back into Deuteronomy, the previous book, 
There's, uh, there's um, God uh, speaking to his people saying he will judge the Amorites. He's going to judge them for their sin. They're going to face his terrible judgment. And this is the outworking of it. And the picture of God's judgment on people who rebel against him is terrible and it is total. It is something that is horrifying to be old and it is in com- complete. Nothing escapes. No one escapes. It says the army were basically annihilated before God. More died from hailstones, God's judgment, than, than from the swords. And then we get the final section of the passage. What does it say? It says here, At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he had in the sight of Israel, sorry, he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Last section, request. At that time, this section begins. So it's at the same time as when Joshua was marching out where there was a battle, this, this incident took place. God, we've already seen, has spoken to Joshua. Do not fear. I am with you. Here we see the reverse. Joshua is now speaking to God. And we have this section here which there is debate about what it actually means amongst scholars. And there is no con- conclusive kind of answer it could be this it could be that so I just sort of take you through it it could be they say that 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 section there could just be some poetic language that moon um, stopping if you go to Judges chapter 5 there's a similar section where um, the judges Deborah and Barak are attacking Israel's enemy and there's a song and it talks about the stars fighting for Israel. And so there's this poetry, Hebrew poetry, that could just be a poetic language that's basically saying, give me more time to get this job done, Lord. I've got to attack your enemies. We need time to do it. And so this idea of the sun standing still in the sky could be just simply poetic language. Another option is it could be that the sun literally or the the world the the rotation of the earth stopped so it looked like the sun didn't move there was a miracle of cosmic proportions where the day was actually longer than a 24-hour period that we're familiar with something happened there that that God did which he's more than able to do where he extended a period of hours of daylight so they could finish the battle and destroy God's enemies another option which interestingly is the reverse, which some scholars say, is that actually, instead of being more light, it refers to more darkness, something like an eclipse with the sun and the moon coming over each other. Many of the people of the the land at the time worshipped sort of the sun and the moon. And so to darken the sun in the middle of the day would have been a terrifying thing for the enemy to behold, a bad omen for those who worship the sun, and just is that part of what threw it into panic and so we have this kind of situation what's going on there and then they throw in just to really confuse you the book of Jashar anyone read that it's just a biblical author who wrote it is now quoting a book that isn't in the bible which is like what does that mean well the interesting thing is this book turns up again into Samuel 1 
When David writes a funeral song for Saul and his son Jonathan, who were dead, Saul being the first king of Israel and his son Jonathan, David loved Jonathan, they were great friends, he pens a song. He also mentions the book of Jashar. So it was obviously something that was around at the time that people would have been aware of. And basically the author's saying, if you don't believe me, just go and look over there. So it's just in there and it's kind of one of those, Lord, I don't know why you put it in there, but that's sort of a bit of the background that we are aware of because otherwise you don't know huge much more about it, but it's in there. But the interesting thing is, one of them you can debate which one it was. If you look at the next verses where it says there's been no day like it ever, it kind of, for me, it leans probably more to number two. No day like it, no day since, when actually the day has been extended by the power of God. But interestingly, that probably isn't the point of what the author is talking about. What does he say? When, if you go to um, verse 14, the point of the author is, there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. When the Lord heeded the voice of the man. Bearing in mind, the previous chapter, they hadn't sought counsel from God, had they? In fact, it is obvious by its omission that the text says they didn't seek the counsel, they didn't go and ask him. Yet God is faithful to his promises and says, I am with you. I will always be with you. You're going to defeat your enemy. And then we have this bit where God, uh, Joshua speaks to the Lord and God heeds his voice. And Joshua, it seems, speaks as almost if he's God. He commands the sun and the moon to stop. And he's saying, actually, he's speaking. It says, the Lord heed him. The Lord heard the request of a man and the man who just messed up. And what we see here is a type, a type of Christ. Who's the one man that God truly heeded? His son Christ, who came to earth and lived as a man, both fully man and fully God. He is the one who not only heeded the voice, but he spoke the voice of God. And so we have Joshua here speaking out to God, almost as if he is God, commanding something to happen, and God heeded his word. And this great miracle took place. And we only find this, the way this language is used, three times in the whole Bible. Once here, once when Elijah raises a a boy to life, 1 Kings 17. And he commands the child to come back to life and he comes back to life. And once in Numbers uh, 21 where the people of Israel plead to God to bring judgment on their enemy. This great plea before God that God hears where people are almost making demands of the Lord that are outrageous, yet God in his grace and mercy decides to listen and heed it. The main thrust there is that God would listen to the voice of a man and heed him when he is God over heaven and earth and men particularly have just messed up before him. All right, let's pull this together. Leave the passage there. Jeremy's going to handle the rest next week and we're going to look at three application points. First one. They get better. First one is the judgment of God. The judgment of God. The the reality of this passage, the reality of the Bible, is that the enemy of God's the enemies of God will face God's judgment. It is inevitable and it is terrible. The Amorites, which were the the people here, the five kings, that's what they represented, the people of the Amorites, they were under God's judgment from way back in Genesis chapter 15 when God spoke to Abraham. They were people who were rebellious against God. 
They were all parts of evil practices, uh, child sacrifice, and a whole bunch of other things, and they fell under God's judgment. And God says, I'm going to punish them one day. I will punish them for their evil. And the reality is one day, all sin, all evil, and all wrong will be punished. We may not see it in a particular moment, but one day it will all be punished. Everything will be dealt with. God is a God of justice. He is good and right and fair, and no one will get away with anything. Everything that is secret will be brought out into the light. Everything that's hidden, everything that you see exposed and publicly shown will be one day punished, even if it doesn't appear like it at the moment. And we find ourselves with two choices. It will either be punished in Christ or on you. They're the choices. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And you have two choices today. Where do you want your evil and sin and wrong decisions and bad things? Do you want them poured out on you, like the Amorites, or on Christ? Because there is no escape. The Amorites found that. They tried to run miles and miles and miles and miles. They couldn't get away from God's judgment. On that last day, you want to be God's friend and not God's enemy. And it's not particularly palatable but it's in our Bible. And actually, the justice of God is something actually for us to adore him. It's, something, it's actually a point of worship for us. It's not something that we should shy away and be ashamed of. Yes, he is a God of justice. Yes, he will deal with wrong and all perpetrators of all evils of all kind. They will be dealt with one day. And ultimately, we know that. We've had wrongs in our life and people think they've got away. We've been betrayed and hurt and lied to and damaged. And we've cried out for it. And God says, one day I will deal with it. It will either be on Christ on his cross or on that individual if they have not turned away from it. So for us, we can take confidence in that. We can take joy in that, that knowing one day all evils will be righted. There will be nothing that we see, we hear, we read about, we experience personally that will not go unpunished. It will all happen. Second thing, the power of God. The power of God. Now, unlike being a fan of the Patriots, when the game begins, you know the outcome. When you're a Christian, you know the outcome. You know what happens at the end. We've read the last page of the book. We know how it turns out. We know who gets the victory. And we know that the victory has already been won. And it's found in Christ alone. Nowhere else. He is the one who has the victory. He, came, he was God. He came to earth. He was born of a virgin. He rose. I grew as a man. He was both fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. Even his enemies couldn't find anything wrong with him. He preached. He demonstrated the kingdoms. He was then arrested, falsely accused, beaten, murdered on a cross, publicly humiliated, but then rose from death victorious, it says. He conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered the grave. He said, I am over it all. I've broken its power. I am ruling and reigning. He ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the titles we give him rightly are King of and Lord of 
That shows that he has complete and total authority over everything. We read through the letters of the apostles and they describe him as the one who not only created everything, but the one who holds it all together, the sustainer of all things. The fact that you're breathing in and out now, that your brain is processing this amazing words I'm proclaiming to you, is because Jesus is holding it together. He's holding you together. He's keeping the sun with, I was about to say the sun spinning. The sun doesn't do that, does it? We go around the sun. The sun stays there, doesn't it? That's right. And the stars, all that, he keeps that all in place. His power and authority is unmatched and unrivaled. He is the one who rules over all things. And what that means for us now is that whatever you're facing, whatever battle you find yourself in, whatever uncertainty life has thrown at you, whether you think it's big or huge, ultimately we know who wins. We ultimately know what will happen at the end. We ultimately know who will be victorious. We know who's sitting on a throne and he'll be at the throne at the end and who's going to be standing for the throne? We are. Clothed in robes of righteousness, worshipping the lamb who was slain. And there'll be no more crying and no more suffering and no more tears. Because that way will have gone. That order will have passed away. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth to experience. And Jesus will rule it all. What confidence that gives us. That means that the plans and purposes of God cannot be thwarted. Either by evil opposition that comes in, tries to stop the plans of God stops to set themselves up to oppose God, whether it be ideologies or, or governments or, or persecution or whatever it is. It cannot stop the plans of God. You think the plans of God can be stopped by your own stupidity. Things you do. You think, oh, I've done this wrong. I've made this mistake. How can the plans and purposes of God still continue? I am so powerful. I have such authority that my one mistake can set the plans of God on the wrong path, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Is that possible? No, it's ridiculous. Of course you can't. Nothing can stop the plans and purposes of God. Even in the story, who was Joshua just messed up leading his people, God's people into the promised land. He hadn't sought God's counsel. Next thing he's known, God's saying, I'm with you. And God's saying, and Joshua's saying, start, son, stop. And it does. Nothing can stop the plans and purposes of God. They are going and they are heading towards a victory day. And so whatever you're facing today, whatever it is, take confidence in that. When it comes to prayer, we're praying on Tuesday night. See how I did that? Seamless. Come and pray there. We can take great confidence when we pray. We can call on God knowing he is able to answer. He is powerful and he is working out his purposes. Even if we don't always understand it, we don't see it. We often go to God and say, God, I know you're working out your plans and purposes, but let me tell you how it goes down. Let me tell you how I want you. And you tell him, but actually we just pray to God and say, God, let your kingdom come. When we proclaim the gospel and we pray in the good news, we know that one day there's going to be a host before the throne of God of every people, of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue. So we can proclaim faithfully and boldly, knowing God will call people to himself and save them. There is no... We have nothing to fear in proclaiming the good news of God because it is powerful and it will have an effect on people's lives. We don't have to be afraid in serving others, in forgiving others. And think we might think it's weak. 
Why are you serving them? Why are you helping them? Why are you forgiving? Why are you letting things go? Because ultimately, God's plans and purposes are being worked out. Nothing can stop them. And so we are humble, we obey God's commands, and we follow him knowing one day what will happen. Last one. The grace of God. Told you it would get better. The grace of God. This story tells us about the grace of God. Here's a mind-blowing truth. God listens to you. I was expecting more of a, or something, you know? God heeds the voice of man. We saw it in Joshua. We saw it in our ultimate example in Christ. Jesus says to his followers, he says, you're no longer servants, I call you friends. Jesus was our ultimate example, how he spoke to the Father, but as Christians we find ourselves now in Christ. We are holy and righteous. We can come and talk to our Father in heaven at any time. It says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What an extraordinary place to find yourself where the king of heaven, the creator of all saying is, come to me and speak to me. Come to me, draw close to me. And the, the, the writer of the Hebrew is saying, you can do it with confidence. There's almost a, there's a boldness kind of bordering on arrogance that you can just march into the throne room of God and say, God, I've got a problem. I need some help. I need wisdom, I need guidance, I need mercy, I need grace, I need forgiveness because I've messed up. Help me, Lord. We had all our children here, kind of before us, and they're a wonderful visual example. Did you see my two on the stage? God bless them. Did they care you were there? Mummy was there, and mummy is going to give me that kind of attention I need. And we're like that with God. He's a parent. He'll take whatever you've got whenever you want. Anytime, any place. We don't have to build ourselves up. We don't have to think, am I good enough? You are good enough in Christ. We just come and we talk to him. And that's the grace of, mer- of mercy of God. We get to partner with him in what he's doing in the world. We get to run alongside him. Say, so actually, come with me. And I will show you my plans and purposes being well. You get to be part of it. Sometimes when we talk about prayer, we're almost like, do I have to pray? No, you get to pray. You get to talk to him. It is a part of a relationship. It is a beautiful thing that we get to do. We get to partner with him. We get to walk alongside him. We get to see him do incredible things. As we read our Bible, as we pray, as we're part of his church kingdom, we get to see his kingdom break out around us. We pray for the sick. Oh, they got healed. We speak the good news. We speak words of comfort and joy. We, we, we seek to serve the poor and alleviate suffering. All these kind of things, we get to do them. We were at um, a leader's day, some of us on Thursday down in Bedford, and there were a bunch of leaders from the movement gathered together, and we had a, a good time. We worshipped, we had some teaching, but part of the day was um, some stories that people had told, and they like to tell stories at the beginning of the day just to really fuel faith. And uh, there was a guy called Andy Martin who comes to um, preach with us. He helps us with the church. And he was just telling stories, crazy stories from around the world of 
places where people have been um, in countries that would be hostile to the good news of Jesus. Not apathy, but hostile. And there's teams going in there and they're finding people that they've kind of met in these places. And there was one guy, he, he, he met a woman and she said, um, they got talking and the story comes out. You know, she said, two years ago I had a dream and I met this man in this dream and he said, you need to find out about me. And she said, who are you? And he said, my name's Jesus. And she spent two years trying to find out about him, but she was tormented by demons the whole time. And then she met this guy, and he says, he was like, he says, well, why have you come to this? And he says, I've come here to tell people about Jesus. He says, tell me about Jesus, I want to know. She got saved on the spot, released from demons. He gave her a Bible, he's teaching her about Jesus. And you're like, whoa, we get to do that because the power of God is at work and the grace of God has been poured out upon us. And that's what it means to follow him. That's what it means to follow him. I, I need to stop or I just keep ranting. Okay, do you want to stand up? Do you want to stand up? I'm going to pray. Can the band come back up and we'll finish? Do you just want to close your eyes? I'm just going to lead us in a bit of prayer and then we're going to sing and worship and see what God wants to say to us today. Holy Spirit of God, I thank you that you've been here with us. Lord, I ask you just pour yourself out on your people here. If you're not a believer here and you're new and you've kind of come in and you may have heard this stuff for the first time, we want to say we love that you're here, we love you, we're for you, we want good things for you. But I also just want to make it clear that the judgment of God is real and it's coming. And we as Christians, we're no better than anyone else. All we, know is, all we know is that we recognized it was coming and we, we asked for it to be poured out on Christ rather than us. We chose to repent from our sin, turn away, seek forgiveness and follow him. And if you're not a believer here today, that's what you need to do. You need to recognize who Jesus is. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has a claim on your life because he created you and he made you and he keeps you breathing every second of the day. And if you want to know what that means, you want to talk about what it means to repent of your sin, turn away, put your tr- faith and trust in him, choose to follow him all the days of your life, we'd love to talk to you at the end. But that is real. Don't, don't walk out thinking that's nothing. Judgment of God is coming and it's inevitable. For those of us who are believers here, we can enjoy the fact that we have been freed from that, not because we're smart or better or good or, or special in any way. It's just because God's grace has been poured about upon that. And we just need to enjoy that. Lord God, we want to thank you that you are a just God and you would not let sin go unpunished. But we thank you, God, that you saved us from that punishment that we so right and royally deserve. Thank you that you saved us from our sin and the evil things we've said and done and the good things we've left undone. Lord God, we thank you for that. And Lord God, we thank you for your plans and purposes that are heading towards a conclusion, a great conclusion. Lord, and we thank you that we get to be part of that. We're called up in that. Your purpose is, Lord, and we thank you that your power is infinite, incredible, and it is available to us. We get to partner with you. We get to join alongside you. We get to come to you and make bold, daring, crazy requests of you and you delight to answer us. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for that. Holy Spirit of God, we want to say we love you and we praise you. And God's people said... Amen.